Well, if you guys were here with us in the beginning of this year, then you know that we started out this year with a very specific goal. We said that we, don't, we want to take 2011 and we want to dedicate it to becoming a people who know God's Word and then who also live God's Word. And just to be clear, okay, in case you haven't been with us on this journey, it's not like we were unconcerned about knowing and living the Word of God prior to 2011. We didn't just happen upon the Bible in January and think to ourselves, wow, you know, there's some cool stuff in here. Let's study this. We've always studied this. We will always study this, and I think that's a good point, too. It's not like we're going to get to January of 2012 and have 2011 officially done over and in the books and say, okay, we can cross that off of the list of things that we're hoping to accomplish as a people. We knew God's Word and we lived it. That was 2011, and now we're moving on to something else. We will have another theme next year, but not to the exclusion of this one. Knowing and living God's Word, guys, is at the heart of what you and I are called to do as followers of Christ. What this goal represents this year is the simple fact that we really felt like God was coming to us this year at the beginning of this year and saying, hey, you know what you need to do this year? Blocking and tackling. Fundamentals. You need to go back and more than ever before, you need to orchestrate everything you do around this book. Knowing this book, coming to know the voice of the God who speaks to us in this book, and learning how to obey that voice. So that's what we've been doing. And I think that God has really hugely blessed that effort thus far this year. But today, as Matt said, is the beginning of the fall season for us. School, at least for my kids, all start tomorrow. Everybody's coming back into town now. And here's what I want from you. I want you to join me in praying that God will continue to bless this goal as we move very purposefully and very strategically into the fall. We have a very carefully planned out fall schedule. And here's where it's going. On November 20, this is what we're going to ask of you. We're going to ask of you to leverage your life for the building of God's kingdom in this city. To gather up all the different pieces of your life, push them all in the center of the table and go all in on God. Now, by the way, that's not a new message either. If you've been here the last three weeks, you've heard that message, haven't you? Week upon week upon week upon week. But here's what this season and those five weeks leading up to that day primarily represent to us. It just represents that God has come to us and said, guys, there's your focus. And everything that we're going to be talking about leading up to that is building towards that. Leverage your life for the building of God's kingdom. Watch that language. You'll be hearing it. All right, so as a step towards that today, we're going to begin a series of messages out of the book of James. And James is one of the most practical books in all the Bible. We're calling it God's Word in my everyday life because honestly, as you read through the book, it's almost like James steps into your everyday life and just gathers up all these very important issues. He walks into your home, he gathers up issues. He goes to work with you, he gathers up issues. He goes to school with you, he gathers up issues. By the inside of the Spirit of God, he steps into your heart and soul and he understands what the issues are there. And then he gathers up a whole bunch of them. He sits down across the table from you and he just starts putting them out on the table. And he says, all right, here's what God's Word says about this. And here's what God's Word says about this. And here's what God's Word says about this and so forth. And by the way, he's not subtle. He is really direct. Like, I mean, he is so direct at times, I'm going to read this to you and I'm uncomfortable. Seriously. 
And I had to kind of think about that this week. I mean, he's going to say something really direct to all of us here in a minute. It almost feels insensitive, and I don't know. I know maybe it is, but I don't think it's intended that way. And I had to deal with that this week. And what I realized is, you know what? The Spirit of God has chosen to communicate His Word through certain men and through their personalities. We believe that God Himself gave these men the words that they have then recorded and given to us, which kind of tells me that maybe when it comes to some of these topics, what I really need for God to do is not to be subtle, but just be direct. So James gathers up all these different issues, and the one that he starts with first is the issue of suffering. And if I can just take everything that he's going to say to us today and just boil it down to one little phrase, here's the phrase, are you ready? He's going to say, guys, whatever you do with your suffering, do not waste it. Don't waste your suffering. That's going to be his message to us, but first he introduces himself to you, and there's something in that. James is the blood brother of Jesus. He shares the same mom. Different dads, we know the Christmas story, but same mom. These guys grew up, you know, fighting over the mashed potatoes together at the dinner table. Think about that. They went fishing together. They walked to school together. They wrestled around in the, you know, the living room together. They probably got put together to go out and work in the yard. They apprenticed, I would guess, under Joseph as carpenters together. And what does James think about his brother's claim to be God before he sees him resurrected from the dead? He thinks the same thing that all the other siblings of Jesus thought. Thinks he's a little off. And probably a little is putting it mildly. You know, if you're trying to create a myth or fable, and you're trying to create a superhero, if you will, you probably don't put in the New Testament, if that's what you're trying to do with the New Testament, the fact that the siblings of Jesus at some point express this doubt about his mental stability. But they do. He is not a follower of Christ until he, together with his whole family and village of Nazareth, no doubt, did what they did every single year of his life, traveled up to the the Passover, but this year, the lamb is going to be different. And it doesn't say that he stood at the foot of the cross as Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, dies. But it says that his mother's there, and I've got to believe that he was either there or he knew what was happening. It's his brother. And it wasn't done in secret. He watches the Lord die. He watches the Lord be buried. And Jesus Christ then appeared to him, raised from the dead after the third day. That's pretty cool. And you know what James did at that point? He gathered up all the little pieces of his life and he said, whoa, hey, um, I'm going to be leveraging all of this now and I'm going all in, Lord, on you. James was made one of the upper echelon leaders of the early church in the city of Jerusalem. He's referred to as a pillar of the church. You know, he's like up there with Peter, John, big time position of leadership. He's said to have been a very devout man. It said that his knees were like the knees of camels, you know? And that's not really very complimentary, I don't think, until you recognize why his knees were like the knees of camels. They were like that because he spent so much time kneeling in prayer. Very devout man. Very godly man. That's who writes this book. 
That's who sits you down at the table. That's who cuts through all the you-know-what and gives it to you straight today. And he introduces himself like this. He says, James, and then, of course, he says, a blood brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, a personal witness of his resurrection, somebody that argued over the mashed potatoes with him and went fishing with him and apprenticed with him, one of the upper echelon leaders of the church because, well, you know, because, pious man, check out my knees. He doesn't say any of that stuff. James says, James, and then it's just like he's coming to us and saying, okay, let me tell you who I am. Fundamentally, constitutionally, here is the essence of me. I want you to know the real me, and the reason I want you to know that is because we're going to get very real and personal together. He says, James, and then here I am, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Boy, he could have tooted his horn, and he doesn't. He's saying, look, you know, what makes me special is not my blood, it's, it's the blood of Jesus. What makes me special is not my title, it's the titles of Christ. What makes me special are not my spiritual achievements, they're His spiritual achievements. What makes me special is the reality that li- my life is not mine, but my life is His. He says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who he is. But now who is he writing to? Well, who he's writing to is a group of sufferers. And if you're reading along, I know you want to go, no, I don't think that's actually the case. Because what it says actually, Tom, is to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And then he, you know, kind of nicely says greetings. And it does say that. But that's really just another way of saying to a really big group of big time suffering people. And he's writing to them in the midst of their suffering. You know, one of the many ways that the New Testament presents Jesus to us is as the new and true Jacob. Jacob in the Old Testament, if you're familiar with the story, has 12 sons. And through those 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel were physically born. Jesus comes and what does he do? He collects up 12 disciples. See, he's the new Jacob. And what is he doing? He's forming a new and a true Israel, which is his church. And how is the new Israel born? Spiritually, through the ministry of his disciples. James is writing to the church, guys. And the first thing that he tells us about the church is that they're dispersed. It means literally scattered. And why have they been scattered? How have they been scattered? They've been scattered through persecution. They've been scattered as a result of their public profession of faith in Jesus Christ. There were not a lot of secret Christians in the days of James. There were not a lot of people who were kind of, you know, trying to keep their associations and faith in Jesus sort of on the down low because, I mean, who might know, you know, what somebody might think, what somebody might do, what somebody might say. The reality is they all knew what somebody would do, say, think. They got all that. They knew that on the front end. Entering in, they understood. When I publicly profess Christ, and oh, by, that, by the way, that's part of following Jesus. Well, it's going to cost me. And in their case, it costs them oftentimes their homes. It costs them their families. Their friends turned their back on them completely. It cost them their businesses oftentimes. Nobody would do business with these people anymore. They were ostracized from their community. And in many cases, the persecution was so severe, they just threw their hands up in the air and said, well, that's it, I guess we have to leave, and did. They were dispersed. They were scattered to go start over as foreigners in a foreign land. That's who James is writing to. He's writing to people who right in that moment that they got the letter were suffering profoundly. 
And his message is, guys, don't waste your suffering. Don't waste it. And he begins to deliver that message in verse 2, where he dares to say this. Now, take it in. Feel it. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. And he's not coming with that as a suggestion. He's not recommending that that might be a good thing for them to do. He's not even coming and saying, listen, if somehow you could figure out a way to do this, Jesus will really be glorified in the midst. No, it's an imperative. It's a command. He's coming to these people and to you and I in the midst of our suffering, and he's saying something that is almost unthinkable to us. He's saying, guys, count it all joy when you suffer. When you meet trials of various kinds... Why? Because they're fun and enjoyable and they just sort of, you know, naturally produce these spontaneous feelings of happiness and joy that you just can't seem to contain within yourself. You just bubble over. No, that's ridiculous. They produce within you feelings of hurt, of despair, of confusion, of pain, of all of those kinds of things. Depression, etc., etc. We're to count it all joy, he's going to tell us. Because when we view our sufferings through the magnifying glass of faith that he is going to hand to us today in the next couple verses... And we examine them carefully, what we see within them is that within each season of suffering is an opportunity to produce something that is so precious and so valuable that it fully redeems and justifies the season of suffering that we're going through. And it allows for us, even if only through our tears, to count it all joy. He's saying, guys, I want you to know something up front about suffering. I know it all looks like dirt to you, but there's some gold in the dirt. I know it looks like a whole pile of mud to you, but there are some precious gems in the mud. There are some things in this suffering that God has for you that are there for you to find and benefit from. Don't waste it. Don't miss it. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Now begin to follow his argument. He says, for you know that the testing of your faith. Now let's pause. Let's be honest. That's exactly what suffering tests. It tests our faith. Never once have I ever had anybody show up at my office, make a special appointment to see the pastor to tell me how good their life is going. Ever. Tom, business is great. Family is great. Kids are great. Couldn't be prouder. I'm tan. I'm ripped. Look at how healthy I am. Just thought I'd pop in and let you know. (laughs) Countless numbers of times I've met with people whose lives were falling apart. And what do they feel like? Despair? Hurt? Pain? Confusion? Suffering. And what do we talk about? We talk about faith. That's what gets tested. There is nothing like suffering to test our faith. And there is nothing like suffering to grow our faith. And that's where James is going. Look for the gold amidst the dirt. It's there. Don't waste it. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? For you know that the testing of your faith, and that's what gets tested, produces what? Because it's precious when you understand what he's talking about. 
It produces steadfastness, or the word could also be translated perseverance or endurance, but it carries with it something that the English doesn't. It carries with it in the original language a word picture, and it's a word picture of somebody who is able to stand up under a great weight that's been laid upon them. He's saying in some sense that our faith, if you will, is sort of like, you know, your physical muscles and suffering, if you will, is like going to the gym. It's your personal trainer and it hurts, but no pain, no gain. Yeah. Don't you love it when somebody comes to you in the midst of your suffering and says something like that? You just want to punch him in the mouth. (laughs) Oh, really? Bam. How's that feel? but it works you out. He's saying that there is a spiritual strength to be found in suffering if you're looking for it. A strength that will enable you to stand strong through the good times and the bad as you pursue Jesus with your life, as you gather up your pieces and go all in as you seek to leverage your life for the glory of God and for the joy that's found in it. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And here's why, for you know that the testing of your faith produces that kind of a strengthening of your faith that is found in no other gymnasium. Sorry, it's just not. It produces steadfastness. But then what does steadfastness produce? Well, nothing if you don't let it. Nothing if you waste it. Nothing if you fail to mine for gold, for gems and for jewels. He says, let steadfastness or the strengthening of your faith which comes through suffering have its full effect. Let it have its full effect on you, which is what? That you may be perfect and complete. It doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden going to be sinless. It's speaking of maturity. He's saying that you may grow and develop and mature in your faith and as a consequence that you be made more and more and more and more and more and more like Jesus. Let it have its full effect on you. Don't waste it. That you may grow and become more like Christ, lacking, at least in terms of your faith and character, in nothing. In nothing. Which means, by the way, that you will waste your suffering if you refuse to believe that your suffering has been specifically designed for you by your sovereign, loving, heavenly Father, and for the express purpose of growing and developing and maturing your faith and forming and making and molding you into the image of Jesus. And it means also that you will waste your suffering if the only goal you have in the midst of it is to somehow grit your teeth and get through it so you can put it in the rearview mirror and forget all about it as though it never happened. You'll miss the gems. He's saying, embrace it and pray, God, let it have its full effect on me that I might, in the midst of this, find the gold. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness, that's your choice, have its full effect on you that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then he continues with this. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, which is just really a different way of saying, hey, let me tell you what you're going to need if you're really going to embrace your suffering, if you're going to mine for gold and find the gems as opposed to wasting it. 
What he's saying to us is in those seasons of suffering, here's what you need. You need wisdom. It's kind of like when Paul comes to the husbands and say, hey, husbands, love your wives. Okay, what is he saying? He's saying, let me tell you something about the heart of your wife. Here's what she needs from you. She needs love. And he comes to the wives and he says, and the wife must respect her husband. What is he saying? He's saying, let me tell you wives something about the heart of your husband. Do you know what she needs from you? Or he needs from you respect. James is saying, let me tell you what you're going to need to embrace and to fully mine the opportunity that is this season of suffering in your life. What you're going to need is wisdom. He says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. There's the solution, he says, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But how will he be, it be given to him? I mean, how does God give us wisdom in this life, guys? He does it through a number of different avenues. Let me give you avenue number one. This book. This is it. The primary way that God speaks to His people today is by His Holy Spirit as we dig into this book. And do you know what that means? It means that you will waste your suffering if you spend more time reading about whatever the cause of your suffering is on the internet or in books or wherever else and how to get out of your suffering than you do in this book. How else does He teach us? He calls us to live in community, doesn't He? God speaks to us, sounds crazy, but through one another. So many times in my life, the counsel of other believers has been the Word of the living God to me, which means that you will waste your suffering if you allow it to drive you into isolation as opposed to into deeper relationship with other followers of Christ. So James says this, he says, look, here's what you're going to need to embrace and not waste your suffering. You're going to need wisdom, so go to God, ask wisdom from Him. He's going to give it to you. He's going to give it to you generously. He will give it to you, he says. But then he adds this, he says, but let him who asks for wisdom is the idea, ask in faith, uh uh-oh, with no doubting. Yikes. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that kind of a doubting person, he says, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, much less wisdom. For he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I have to tell you, until you understand what he's talking about here, that is very disheartening. I mean, honestly, you know, I'm a sinful guy. I'm a a weak person as a result of my... I don't know that I have ever gone to God and asked for anything without some shred of doubt being somewhere within me. Is he saying, I can't go to God doubting? Can I not bring my doubt to God and talk to him about it? That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about our focus. He's coming to us and he's saying, look... Don't trust in God for the wisdom that you need to embrace your suffering and not to waste it on Monday and then reject Him on Tuesday and run off and trust in something or someone else. And then reject that on Wednesday and run off to trust in something or something else. And then in your panic, reject that on Thursday, run back to God. You know what, God? I'm not patient enough to wait. I think we're done here. And I'm going to go over here on Friday and Saturday, Sunday, you're coming to church anyway. You might as well go all in on God. But he's talking about a constancy of focus. He is saying, decide today to whom you will anchor your heart and life and make that the sovereign Lord God. And then face Him continually and pursue Him for the wisdom that you need and for that matter, anything else that you need in life, which means, by the way, that you will waste your suffering if you allow your suffering to cause you to attach yourself, to anchor your heart in life to anything or anyone else. 
and to frantically pursue the wisdom of anyone or anything else. God may speak to you through someone else. I've already said that. But who are you relying to and looking to for wisdom? It's the Lord. And then James says to this band of sufferers who, because of their public identification with Jesus, literally have lost homes and businesses and all kinds of economic opportunities, have uprooted their families and left everything behind and moved to a foreign land to start over as a foreigner in a foreign land, which could never have been an easy thing for them to do. He says to these people, let the lowly brother, and I've got to believe that most of the people who heard this letter read the first time said, yeah, okay, that would be me. I mean, if they took a census, everybody for the most part, would have raised their hands. Not all of the people, but that's the group he's talking to. He says, let the lowly brother boast, but in what? In his exaltation, which seems odd because I've just told you that, I mean, economically speaking, at least relative to where they are when they get this letter, they used to be way up here. Now they're way down here. So it's like, what is it exactly is this exaltation that they're now able to boast in? And the exaltation is Christ himself. James is coming to these people as one who knows all about their sufferings, and he's saying, look, I know all about all the things that you guys have lost. I get it. But focus with me for a second on what you've gained. You've gained Christ. Which means that we will waste our suffering if all we focus upon in the midst of our suffering is everything that we've lost, and we fail to focus upon the great opportunity for growth and development and strengthening of our faith and conformity to the likeness of Christ. If we fail to focus also upon the gold that's found amidst the dirt, upon the gems that are there to be found amidst the mud. James says, let the lowly brother rejoice or boast in his exaltation. And then he says, and the rich, so he's not leaving anyone out in his humiliation. Well, what humiliation? The humiliation that is ours and that is theirs when we publicly identify with Jesus. So he's saying something that we all know and that many here today enjoy. You know, when you have success economically, people revere you. People look up to you. People admire you. People want to be you in many ways. And you sacrifice that a bit when all of a sudden you attach yourself publicly to Jesus. I remember when I was an attorney and I was trying to wrap up my law practice so I could come be the pastor of a church, you know, so, I mean, that's nuts. I had hundreds of cases, you know, I'm like all these different cases with all these different lawyers, many of which I'd gotten to know. I mean, I've been doing it for 10 years. And so I had to explain to them individually what I was doing. And it was a total conversation killer. I mean, was kind of like, I have no response to that. You must be nuts. I saw this a couple of years ago. One of our elders was honored with a really prestigious business award here in the community. And uh, so we were invited. I was invited to go along. Beth and I went to this big dinner. And uh, we sat in this big hall, and there were all kinds of people there. It was sort of like the really, you know, successful folks were all there. A few of you probably were there. And this friend of mine was being honored together with three other honorees. So there were four people receiving the award, and most of the crowd were people who would really love to receive the reward. You know what I mean? Two of the four honorees, our elder and one other guy whose name, if I said it, you would know immediately who it is. 
It was that kind of prestigious award were believers in Christ and gave testimony to him. And as they were doing it, I was looking around the crowd and thinking to myself, wow, I wonder what everybody's thinking. There is a humiliation in attaching yourself publicly to Jesus. But make no mistake about it, it's what you're called to do. Let the lowly brother, he says, boast in his exaltation in Jesus and and the rich in his humiliation in Jesus. And then he says, because like a flower of the grass, even the rich man will pass away. What is he saying? He's saying, guys, your reputation, your stuff, everything, it's like the flower of the grass. It's there today and it's gone tomorrow. My goodness, he's saying, who cares about sacrificing something that you barely ever have anyway? Which means that you will waste your suffering, by the way, if your suffering does not cause you to hang on less loosely to these transient things and to this transient world than you did previously and cling more tightly to the things that, that never end. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. His wealth can't prevent that. Nothing can. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. Such is the way of this world, he's saying. So also will the rich man together with the poor man fade away in the midst of his pursuits, which means that you will waste your suffering if your suffering doesn't cause you to examine your pursuits and to consider their true value in light of eternity, which is the theme that he continues in verse 12, where he says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. He stands up under trial by the power of God. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which by the way, is not a reference to some kind of a gem studded gold thing, you know, that a king would wear. It's a laurel wreath. It was given in James' day to people who finished a race successfully. I won the race, I get the crown. You get the idea? He's saying, guys, we're in a race. And we're racing for a crown. And he knows that it's a difficult race. He knows that it's a strenuous race. He knows that there is a significant exertion that is going to be involved on our parts to get done, but he's holding before us the crown of the beauty of the life of Christ. He's saying, that is what will adorn you when you cross the finish line, not just of this season of suffering, but of life. If you allow and embrace your sufferings, that they might strengthen you to finish strong, which means that you will waste your suffering if your suffering doesn't make you think about heaven. Think about eternity. Think about the things that are not transient, that are not impermanent, but that are permanent. James says, blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. He will be adorned with the beauty of the life of Christ. And then he raises a, a, a topic that seems a little bit confusing until you think about it and you realize, oh no, this is actually very, very relevant. He raises the topic of temptation in verse 13. He says, let no one say, when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by Satan. No, actually, by his own desire. So he's putting it on us. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. That's what it brings forth. And sin, when it matures, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Why does he bring up the topic of temptation inside a discussion of suffering? I think he does it, first of all, because temptations themselves can be suffering. Just ask the addict, man. There is a suffering there. It's tough. And I think he brings it up also because suffering subjects us. It makes us vulnerable to all kinds of temptation. Temptation to doubt God, to doubt His character, to doubt His nature, to doubt His love, His goodness, His power, His wisdom. Temptation to succumb to fear and to panic and to pity. Temptation to use this season of your life in which from your little itty-bitty perspective and mine, it seems like God has abandoned us, doesn't it? And to use it as an excuse to turn around and to abandon Him. To maybe go do something, you know, I mean, we kind of would like to do anyway. Which means, by the way, that you will waste your suffering if you allow your suffering to cause you to doubt God's goodness, love, character, nature, wisdom, power, etc., and you will waste your suffering if you use it as an excuse to sin. God's goal in your suffering is not sin, it is righteousness, it's not death, it is life. And James hints to that as he concludes this section, beginning in verse 16, he says, so do not be deceived. He's saying, don't allow yourself to be deceived in the midst of your suffering. God is not bringing these temptations to you. No, 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 own it. Here's what God brings you. He says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, though admittedly those gifts are at times wrapped in mud. They're given in the wrapping of suffering. Coming down from the Father of lights, not darkness, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. His character doesn't change. Goodness, love, power, wisdom never changes. Of His own will, here's what He brought forth. He brought forth you. By the word of His power, He gave birth to you spiritually. You're His child, He's saying, that you and I should be a kind of first fruits of His creation. That is to say that we should be the first to taste of the redemption which will one day encompass all of heaven and earth, at which point all of suffering will have served all of its purposes in our lives. It will have run its course completely, and it will be done. What is James saying? He's saying that within each season of suffering, there is an opportunity for growth and development and maturation, for being conformed more and more and more to the likeness of the Lord Christ. And he's telling us that that growth, that that development, that that conformity to the likeness of Christ is so precious. And he's saying, guys, please don't don't waste it. Don't miss it. Don't fail to dig for it. Don't fail to submit to it and let it have its full effect on you. For when you realize its benefits, you can count it all joy even if that's through your tears.
bottom line. Don't waste your suffering. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this good and godly man that you raised up and through whom you did such great work. Lord, we thank you for the example of his piety, for the example of his witness. Lord, we thank you for the great wisdom that by your Spirit you share today with us through him. And Lord, I pray that you would awaken us in the midst of our sufferings, that you would help us to see through the lens of faith that James provides to us, that we might see your good hand, that we might understand and appreciate your love, that we might anchor ourselves and hold fast in the midst of whatever storm comes our way to you, that we might resolve to submit to your good and sovereign purposes in our lives even when they're confusing and we do not understand. Lord, that we might mine the depths of the dirt that you deliver. And together with you, that we might find within it gold and precious jewels, things that last for eternity. God, that we might give you glory by rejoicing even in the midst of our tears. We pray that you would give us that ability today and that kind of wisdom and resolve. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.